I think whether it's a you know CEO of a company, you know coaches of other sports, I think you can take so many things from so many people who are not basketball coaches. I think if you want to, you know, learn and grow and, and try to be the best you can be, seek everyone and anything out uh, that you think could again come back to fitting into how you do things with your program. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Brown University, Mike Martin. Coach Martin is here today to discuss learning from other disciplines, forcing to a weak hand, the intricacies of the five-out offense, including inverted ball screens and get actions, deal breakers in recruiting, and take part in an always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Mike Martin. We want to start with actually something that you sent to us when we were talking about doing this interview, and it was uh, an article about, uh, I believe it's called The Motley Crew, a group of coaches that you were a part of meeting on Zoom and kind of talking basketball and X's and O's throughout the pandemic and the quarantine and um, some great coaches in there and wanted to start with, you know, that group, but also just how someone at your level continues to find people to learn from or continues to find ways to learn and grow once you get to that point and maybe how that group as well is kind of help with that. Yeah. Well, so that, that group's awesome. It's a ton of fun. It's a group that has kind of come together organically uh, through the years at the final four. Basically we, we all love to go to the final four after whatever kind of season we've had and get together and uh, catch up and talk about the season. And John Gallagher, who's head coach at Hartford is probably the, the ringleader. He uh, just an incredible uh, connector of people and he's a great coach too, but just, has really brought so many of the group together. There's a lot of Philly guys in the group. Uh, I'm not a Philadelphia person, but I, I coached there for six years, and I and I shared an office with John for two years, and we become super close. But uh, so that group, when the pandemic started, guys, basically, you know, we realized we were going to miss our fun at the Final Four, and then uh, said, let's get together on Zoom, and it's really it, it evolved into twice a week Zoom clinics uh, where we take turns presenting on different topics and. Uh, all those guys have been just great resources for me in my career. I was, you know, and I still am a really young head coach. And just to be able to pick their brain about different things, you know, whether it's technically, tactically, you know, at, you know, leadership philosophies and ideas. And I've learned so much from those guys. And I think, you know, that's kind of been my approach. We have so much to learn. Uh, the day we think we ha- don't have to learn anymore is, is probably the day we're done. When you have these meetings or when you're talking with other coaches, does there seem to always be a certain theme or a certain topic that's always kind of coming up among these coaches that they're all always trying to master or always trying to improve? It's funny. Every clinic 
usually gets back to ball screen defense and how to attack a ball screen coverage. Uh, you know, it seems like so much of our game, at least here in the United States, uh, collegially comes down to that. And then, and then just, you know, leadership, you know, motivational, uh, how to manage different personalities. What would you do if you're in this situation? We talked a ton about special situations, you know, like Tim Miles would take us through the last few minutes of a game. We just watched, all right, Tim, what are you thinking here offensively, defensively? What would you say in the timeout? But ball screen coverage and how to attack uh, different coverages came up an, an awful lot. I think me and Dan, too, when, you know, when we try to have these conversations, we also like to get a little outside of the box. So in your opinion, have you had conversations with not basketball coaches, but maybe a coach from another sport or from someone from another field that you feel is actually pretty be- has been beneficial or can be beneficial to coaching and leadership? hundred percent. I think whether it's a, you know, CEO of a company and obviously I'm fortunate, you know, at Brown, we have some incredible alumni and a great network that I've been able to tap into, you know, coaches of other sports. We have great coaches in our department and then just, you know, people who are leaders and trying to build a team and, and run things a certain way. I think you can take so many things from so many people who are not basketball coaches. Uh, we had a ton of guest speakers on our Motley Crew Zooms throughout the summer and one that stood out was Gus Bradley, who uh, you know used to be the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, he's just recently hired as the uh, defensive coordinator of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders, I guess. But uh, he was incredible. He was he was so good with so much of what he shared with us, and you know had had some really good follow up conversations with Gus to pick his brain more about what he kind of presented to our group. And yeah, to answer your question, it's it's not limited to just basketball coaches. I think if you want to you know, learn and grow and, and try to be the best you can be, seek everyone and anything out uh, that you think could, again, come back to fitting into how you do things with your program. You said something a few minutes ago that I wanted to circle back on, and that was being a young head coach. And, you know, when you were first hired at Brown, I believe, were you still in your 20s? Uh, when you were hired as a head coach? Yeah, I, I coached my first game at 30, but I was hired. Our press conference was uh, 29 years old. It's, it's amazing, you know, at the, the level you're at to be that young. How did you go about building trust with players that were only six, seven years younger than you at that time? Yeah, so I was super fortunate. The guys I inherited were, I mean, they were like, they were so coachable and their attitude was so much about, do, you know, wanting to do whatever they could to please our staff. Uh, but still, I, you know, I, I thought it was super important to you know, get get to spend time with them away from basketball before we even got on the court. I'll never forget, I was hired June 1st and school was out of session. It was the summer. So, you know, we had some local guys that came down to the press conference I was able to sit with and visit with. But then, you know, I flew uh, all over the country and met with the guys and their families and uh, sat down with them and, you know, just wanted them to feel how important they were to us and you know how important it was for me to build relationships with them and and really get to know them off the court because once we got on the court I was going to demand an awful lot and we did demand an awful lot and we continue to but building that relationship off the court I thought was super important gosh I look back and there's so many things we did that you know as as an assistant coach I made every suggestion I thought it was right I thought it was we have to do this and uh, if we had done this we would have won and it would have went differently and quickly learned I knew nothing and you know, but it was fortunate that those guys, even though we probably asked them to do a lot of things that didn't make any sense, they did it as hard as they possibly could with a great attitude and great kind of spirit. And we, we had some success early on because of those guys, uh, even though mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. You mentioned as an assistant going from someone that, you know, a lot of suggestions and, and then when you moved six inches 
to the head coaching chair, you had to change your outlook. What is it that changes so much? It's, it's a great question. And I don't know that I can define it articulately enough. Yeah, I, I just think like until you, you, know, you walk in the shoes and you realize that every decision ultimately comes to you, you don't realize how, how much thought needs to go into just, you know, little things like what time are we going to leave for the bus? Uh, you know, what time are we going to leave the road trip today? Or, you know, where are we going to stay or what time shoot around or, you know, all those, all those things, all those decisions, obviously you hire great staff and they help you and they give you great ideas and suggestions, but I'll never forget, you know, visiting with a coach here, Ted Hotel and head coach of university of New Haven. He wants to eliminate as many decisions as he possibly can in his life because he has so many decisions to make as a head coach, right? He's going to, he's like, I want to wear the same type of thing every day to work. I'm going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every single day. I want to eliminate as many decisions as possible so that I don't have to worry about making so many because as a head coach, you have to make so many. So yeah, I, I just think guys, it was me being young and naive and, and immature really like as an assistant coach and not realizing how much thought and preparation should go into any kind of decision you're going to make with your team, whether it's how long you want to practice or what kind of drills you want to do or what kind of coverages you want to do, you know, employ on a certain uh, offensive player in a given game, uh, how much thought and preparation went into it. We can look now towards some tactical X and O type of stuff, which we're excited to dive in with you on. The first one is forcing left or, you know, to a weak hand as an overall defensive philosophy. So, I know we're going to get technical with this in a second, but to start, what's the history of that getting into your program? Where did it come from? Who did you study? Why did you want to implement this defensive system? Yeah. So we we started in the summer of 2018. So the 2018, 2019 season is when we eventually uh, jumped two feet in, but you know, we had thought about it. We had talked about it and it's, it's really just our ball screen coverage and we'll get into some of the more uh, finer details as we move on, I'm sure. But, you know, we wanted to, you know, could we be more diverse with our ball screen coverage while simplifying our fundamentals and our terminology, right? And that was, we found out a great way to do it. Uh, I was listening to Dave Smart speak to a group of coaches. Dave Smart's a legendary coach in Canada, Carleton University. He's won so many national championships. He's heavily involved with Canadian national basketball. Uh, and he spoke to a group of coaches in Boston and talked about, you know, kind of what they do. And they force weak, you know, whether you're righty or lefty, they'll force you to your weak hand. We only force left. And part of that went into, we looked at every roster in our league and there were very few guards in our league that were lefty. And we thought uh, for that season, it'd be a great thing to jump into. It happened that like the first five non-conference games we played, they all had lefty point guards. And, uh, <laughs> but but uh, but it's been it's been great for us, you know, and and I think, you know, what I really took from Dave was, you know, at our level, guys are much less accurate and much less successful passing with their weekend. Now, when you get to the NBA and Euro League and some of the high levels uh, in Europe, I think it's a different story, clearly. But at our level, there's a big difference as far as accuracy of the pass, hitting guys on time, hitting guys on target. And, you know, why wouldn't we try to force people to pass with their weekend as much as possible? And I thought about it and we, you know, we dove in, we watched a ton of film on Carlton and we looked at, you know, we researched our league and, and we thought it'd be a good thing to dive into. And we weren't going to just kind of ease into it. We jumped two feet in and here we are a couple of years later, even though we're not playing this year, we we're going to, you know, we believe in it and we think it's been a huge, you know, reason, you know, second to recruiting really, 
you know, hard-nosed defenders and tough competitors and versatile ath- athletic players, it's, it's probably the, the biggest reason for our defensive improvement uh, the last two seasons. Coach, if we can start to get in towards, yeah, you're, you're forcing left on the pick and rolls. My first question is, is the coverage dictated by the position on the court of where the pick and roll is? And will it determine what coverage you're going to be on if he's on, you know, the left side? Got to look at the court now. But, you know, if he's going to be using his right hand or if he's going to be using his left hand, does it determine what pick and roll coverage you guys are going to play then? It does, Patrick. Yeah. So we start, you know, just our basic closeouts. And I think so much of being a good defensive team is, you know, being good on the ball and not, you know, getting beat off the balance. And we do a ton of closeout drills uh, every single day. And we, we close out square to the ball for the most part, with very few exceptions. We close out square to the ball. We have a saying we always talk about anticipate the week, even though I'm square to the ball and, you know, we're not ready to defend a ball screen. We're anticipating the week. And uh, however you want to close out, whether it's one hand, two hands, you got to have hands high on closeouts. Whether you want to close out with your right hand or left hand, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I think it's better if you want to anticipate the week to close out with your left hand. But, but yeah, to get back to your question about where the ball is on the floor, what coverage will it determine? We basically split the court in thirds. And, you know, again, we have similar terminology, you know, as far as what call we're going to make, you know, the guy guarding the screener. Uh, but depending on where it is, we can have probably three different coverages based on where the ball is. But again, our, our terminology is simplified. Our fundamentals, as far as what the guy guarding the ball, what the guy guarding the screener needs to do, they're simplified. But then our coverages are, you know, pretty diverse because of uh, different areas on the court. Okay. If I can follow up now, if you're on the outer third and the pick is to go to his right into the middle with his right hand, what kind of coverages are, are I'm assuming, are you going to ice it or what kind of coverages are you going to use then to get him to go use his left? Yeah. Mo- 95% of the time, it'll be an ice. Exactly right. Now we can be more aggressive with our ice, uh, which we have been. And the thought process for us is if we're going to force you weak and make you, you know, you know, pass the ball with your weak hand, we think the more aggressive we can be, you know, as far as bringing two to the ball. I think so many people want to not bring two to the ball, and I certainly get it and understand why. And there's certain opponents where we want to try to avoid bringing two to the ball, but uh, we think we can be more aggressive doing that if we're sending you to your weekend. So where, you know, as far as how high our guy guarding the screener is in the ice on that wing can vary. But yeah, we're, we're going to yell, you know, early, loud and continuous, hopefully three times. We're going to yell weak if we're guarding the uh, screener. If I'm guarding the ball, I, I'm square to the ball, but I'm anticipating the week. I hear the call and now all of a sudden, you know, we want to connect and direct. We want to get into the ball. Uh, we want to make sure that we send the guy to his left hand, you know, and, and then, you know, depending on who we're playing, you know, the screener, what his abilities are, what the ball handler's abilities are, then, you know, we're, uh, you know, we can have different responsibilities as far as, is he going to pick and pop? Is he going to pick and roll? Our three defenders behind the ball clearly are super important. You know, we pretty much every ball screen that's set, we want the three guys behind the ball to be in a triangle. And then, you know, as a result, because we're aggressive, bringing two to the ball, we've got to be great in our scrambles, great in our rotations. We do four on three scramble drills literally every day. Glad you brought it up with the three guys in the triangle. Does this going to the left all the time? Does it simplify it for those three guys or is it something you have to work on more because they have to know, you know, it's going to be somewhat of a different coverage on a different side of the floor? Yeah, no, we have to work on it for sure. We have to rep it out. And uh, depending on the alignment, depending on the spacing, is the corner filled? Like now if we're on the other wing and now it could be a hard hedge, it could be a, 
could be a drop, but for the most part, it's probably going to be a hard hedge. We want, you know, we, again, we're, we're very, we're not a risk taking defense as far as denials and, and, you know, pressing, but we pick our spots where we can, you know, try to apply some pressure, whether it's in the ball screen or trapping the post or different areas where we want to, you know, maybe uh, increase our risk. Uh, but our defensive turnover percentage numbers have been good the last few years uh, because of our aggressiveness. But if we're on that wing, if the corner's filled versus not filled, obviously there's, you know, differences as far as the three guys in the triangle. Uh, are you bumping? Are you tagging? Are you, you know, at the nail? You know, if it's an empty side, we pretty much will have a nail. We'll have a guy and we call the hole, right? Uh, you know, the low mm -hmm. defender. Uh, and then the other guy is what we would call a floater. He would have responsibilities for skip passes. Guy at the nail would have responsibilities for, you know, taking the first pass out. The guy in the hole obviously has responsibilities if it's a pick and pop or a short roll or a, a, a long roll. He's got those responsibilities. So we, yeah, we break those down often. Uh, at the end of the day, so much of it's going to come down to where the primary pass goes. The two guys in the ball screen have to do a great job with active hands and their uh, execution of sending the ball where we want to send it. But then those three guys behind it are uh, hopefully in position, uh, hopefully, you know, ready to rotate, ready to communicate. And again, that's why we, it necessitates being a really good scramble team. Now we've also seen through our recruiting and, you know, if you watch us, we have uh, not a, you know, uh, a ton of, you know, six ten, six eleven guys. We happen to have a really good rim protector, uh, Jalen Ganey, who was defensive player of the year in the league last year, uh, who can protect the rim and, and, you know, is a very good shot blocker. But the other guys have really been a lot of collection of like six, four to six, six interchangeable guard, different positions. So again, we're okay rotating. And, and scrambling in, in those situations. Coach, if we can move the on ball now to the, the middle third, and I'd like to stay with the, the backside help. What are your rules? If it's in the middle third, are you always bumping from the two man side or does it depend on the direction of where the ball's going? And then also who do you prefer to bump the top guy or the bottom guy? Yeah. So uh, the, the thing that has given us some issues in, in the past, and you guys have obviously covered it a lot, is like if the ball's going to the two guard side, the 45 cut, right? And like who's going to kind of stay high and be in the gap? Who's ultimately responsible for tagging? If you've got a great shooter coming behind and like a shake action, yeah. you know, we say that can just be a quick bump. You know, the ultimate tagger's got to be the low guy on the two person side. Again, what are our two guys in the ball screen doing? Are they letting the guard? you know, have, you know, great time. And he's like a quarterback. Is there pressure on the passer or is he kind of able to pick us apart? That's going to dictate, you know, how successful we are. Uh, and it's going to make the three guys behind the ball, their job a lot easier. Patrick, we've tried to, and, and, you know, again, a lot of this comes down to, you know, having some interchangeable parts defensively, but if we can zone up behind the ball and do a really good job putting pressure on the ball handler uh, with the two guys involved in the ball screen action, you know, and then we, again, we've got to be, ready for different scenarios, different cuts, different screening actions, but hopefully zone up behind the ball and communicate and, and rotate effectively out of it. Certain teams have hurt us by hitting a you know guy in the pocket or on a short roll and all of a sudden it's four on three and they're screening and they're cutting. Penn comes to mind. They do an unbelievable job. They had a great player of the year in the league last year in A.J. Broder. You know, so we can adjust. I mean, we can adjust our coverages too on the ball and how aggressive we want to be. But, you know, as, you know, I would say – primarily we've leaned towards being more aggressive with the guy guarding the screener. Coach, a uh, question about the guy guarding the ball. If for the most part you're square in your defense and then he hears the ball screen is coming, you know, whatever your guys' call is, then what is the technique for him to jump 
to force to the left? What, you know, what do you guys teach going from guarding it straight up to then, you know, what angle, what foot angles do you want, you know, a hand on the hip? Like technically, how do you want them to force it left? Yeah. So we, you know, connect, connect, get into the ball, get into the guy's body. So like, you know, without fouling, if you can, you know, close any distance, any gap between you and the ball, handler, you know, with your hand, you know, we want to adjust our feet a little bit. Uh, certain guys have to adjust maybe more than others, but basically our rule is you cannot let him get right. If he gets right, we're in a whole lot of trouble. Now we have some things that we practice if they do get right, what we have to do and how we have to compensate for that. But you're not going to be, you know, complimented, you know, at all if you let <laughs> right. the guy get right. We've got to do a great job with our feet, and then hopefully the guy on the screen, you know, he's he's coming up to touch. He's, you know, they're trying to close the pocket as much as they possibly can. Now, a guy in the middle of the court going away from a screener, a shooter who can pick and pop. I'm sure you guys can already imagine that that can be really problematic, right? You know, so we've got to do a really good job uh, on the ball. And if there is no screen, then, you know, we want to quickly, you know, we'll say recover with an angle and, you know, get, get back in front and live with a pull up two or a tough shot. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it, there's some scenarios that as we've gone through it now for a couple of years in practice, you know, and, and just going against different opponents that, you know, have been more problematic than others. Uh, I think one of the things that's great is our offense practices against it every day. So like they figure out, you know, Number one, it's good for our guards. They work on passing with their left hand a lot. But then number two, from a defensive standpoint, we quickly find situations where the offense has put us in a tough spot. And we can, you know, like anything else, we can look at it. We can talk about it. We can see the film and see what, you know, what's the solution for that scenario. Coach, building on that, I'm curious, what are your kind of emergency reactions when you said the guy does get right? And then how much to, I think it was with Panone, like, are you in your practices like, training the failure or, you know, being prepared for when, okay, he does get right. Here's what we do and how we do it. Yeah. So for the most part, if the guy gets right, we're going to, we're going to have to switch it or veer it, which we don't want to do. So like we tell our six foot guards, if you don't want to switch onto a big guy in the post, don't let him get right. But for them, if, if a guy gets right, we're going to have to switch. And then, you know, we double the post pretty often and in, in a few different ways. So, you know, if like there's an emergency, you know, we can quickly double it out with the guy who, you know, just switched off the, uh, the screener. If there, you know, if a guy gets clocked on a screen or gets, you know, dies on a screen, which hopefully doesn't happen often, then we can work in some veers and some switches that way as well. But for the most part, yeah. Do we practice it? We probably don't dictate it a whole lot, Patrick, but it happens a lot. Like I know as an offensive coach, if I want to put our defense in a situation, we can get to a scenario pretty quickly. That's going to put them in a spot. It's going to be hard to keep it right. And if they do keep it, or I'm sorry, keep it left. If they do keep it left, then that's great. Really well done. Uh, If they don't, then we're practicing. All right. How are we going to recover if uh, not an ideal situation occurs? Uh, We want to get to offense. So maybe this is kind of a good transition question. What are some actions or concepts that, teams have run against you that maybe before the ball screen that makes it hard to force them left or, you know, that, that, that they can get right. I think, you know, just a, I mean, a pistol or a step up ball screen on that, whatever you want to call it, the right wing. Yeah. I call it, if I'm looking, if I'm on the offense, I'm looking at the basket, the right wing, uh, especially after like a DHO or a, a pitch, you know, like depending on how we guard the DHO uh, you know, that can be a really tough one to keep left. You know, just different actions that have hurt us. Are, and I'd already talked about short rolls and playing through bigs who can really pass in the pocket, uh, a pick and pop stretch big who we send the ball handler away from the screen in the middle of the court. Uh, now, maybe we're going to just switch. You know, maybe we're going to straight switch. Maybe we're going to weak uh, to an automatic veer, you know, 
on that guy who's a pick and popper. Maybe that's something that we're going to do in the scout. Maybe we're going to rotate at that guy. There's there's different things that we can you know do that uh, hopefully can combat whatever the offense is going to try to do. But I'd say those are those are some actions that have definitely hurt us. Uh, and then obviously like a guard who's really willing to just you know, bring two to the ball and then quickly get off it. Right. And now all of a sudden it's a four on three. And as much as we practice, it's still a tough situation for us. So guys who can just make quick, accurate passes out of the ball screen, you know, that that's been something that we've, uh, you know, has given us some issues. If I can throw one more situation at you, if they're going to go from um, what you call it a zoom action, whether they set a screen or give a handoff into the pick and roll. So we're on the left side. If we're staring at the court, the left side, and the point guard, yeah, is either going to get a DHO or a screen going into that pick and roll. Will you try to like knife that handoff or knife that screen to force him back to the left? Or how do you guys then try to solve it to stay with this, you know, keeping them left? Yeah. So I, I guess it depends on who we're playing against. Um, but yeah, like our, you know, on a d- dribble handoff, uh, wide pin down, you know, we'll, if possible, hopefully we can blow it up, right? We always say, we hear it coming, let's get into the guy's hip, let's take away rejects or refusals, let's force him into the screen, whether it's a handoff or a wide pin. And, you know, our, we have a couple different coverages. We can chase the guy, we can whip it, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in a, if we can't blow it up, then hopefully we're connecting and we're directing, we're sending him into the screen, and then it's a quick whip. Uh, obviously, on that side, a whip lends itself to send, keeping him left, yeah. right, and keeping him uh, on that, on that side of the court, if it's guard to guard DHO, I, you know, we switch a, a lot of those actions too. And that can, you know, that can be effective as far as keeping it there on the other side, right? Obviously you're, you know, if you're going to whip it now, all of a sudden you're whipping it to keep it on the side, but then, you know, the ball screen comes, you're almost inviting them to get right. Yeah. So it may, so there's been a lot of those types of conversations amongst our staff in our office. How do we want to handle this? What do we want to do here? And, uh, we have some versatility, and, you know, I, I say we, we send ball screens left the majority of the time because it doesn't always happen. And there may be some games and some opponents where we just think, you know, we've got to adjust uh, because they're so good and, and they're ready for what we're doing. It's not a secret. Getting to the offensive side of the ball now, we've talked a little bit beforehand about open offense, you know, kind of five out concepts and some of the things that you guys run. I'd like to start again on how did you land on this type of offense? Why do you feel it's a good I guess, modern offense to run at the Ivy League level? Yeah, so we went to a double outlet fast break uh, in transition game. Uh, I guess in 2016, 2017, we, we had a couple of really good guards. and They were both could handle it. They both could shoot it. Uh, they both could pass it. So we want, we did that. But we also thought, you know, let's, let's eliminate a rim runner that year for that season we did and have our five take it out or, you know, for the most part, trail the play and screen on the ball or play through him at the nail to get into this five out to, to open up the paint, right, in our transition game. And we thought it was really good for us. We, we really didn't do as much of this open until the last couple of years uh, because of we, who was our best player and our best, you know, one of the best players in the league, a guy by the name of Tom Anang Cho, who was a six foot five kind of versatile do-it-all uh, player for us who was just dynamite at the top of the key and in, in transition and uh, in isolation. So anytime he got a defensive rebound, he was our point guard, right? He was not giving it up and we could quickly transition with our double outlet to all of a sudden those guys on the wings and, you know, our threes and fours run into the corner. If he was playing five, if we, if we were small, if he was playing the four, uh, then our five could rim run. And then if we called open and we wanted to get into this, he could just quickly transition from the paint to either corner and now become a, a screener for us. But if 
Tom and I was at the five. Uh, we were we were running to the corners. Our one and our two were getting to the wing, and we just thought it was a good opportunity to isolate him at the top of the key. And it, it developed into a lot of other actions we could get into. And I know I heard Josh, you know, talking recently about there's so many things you can do from that alignment, and we don't even probably do half of them. Uh, but what we've done has really been to promote spacing and to try to get our best player in a position in some actions where he can be really effective. Coach, with the five out, I'm always curious, how important is to define roles for guys so you don't have chaos on the court or some guy who probably shouldn't be dribbling trying to get the ball and go? You know, does defining clear roles for each player help within this offense? So, yeah, so it's a, so I, I mean, there's a lot of other things that we do, obviously, but like this is like early action we can get into anytime he got a defensive rebound or anytime an offense scored on us, we thought he takes the ball out for us. So we thought it's uh, something quick our guards could organize and, and get us into. Yeah, you know, as far as our break, you know, we try to have a structured break as much as possible, but, you know, it, it, it can, it can differ based on who gets the rebound. It can differ based on who, in this case, T is playing with, because whether T was playing the three, the four, or the five for us, he was inbounding the ball. So as you can imagine, different guys are in different roles, depending on who he's playing with. Uh, but we wanted him taken out because he was, you know, if you're going to press us, we could easily just throw it back to him. And normally he had bigger guys on him and, and he could easily uh, not only bring it up and break pressure, uh, but also, you know, we could flow right into our open, right. And we could flow right into this spacing. So, uh, I think to answer your question, I think defining roles just as far as organization and structure can help. Uh, but it's also something where, you know, so many teams are interchangeable right now. If they have a five who can pass or even if they don't, if they have a five who, you know, can screen, if they have a five who can, you know, catch, you know, you can you can flow into a lot of different things here. And if your four other guys are interchangeable, just fill the corners, fill the wings and let's play right in that spacing. So I do think you can depending on, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of pace you want to play. You can flow into this and get into some pretty good stuff pretty, pretty quickly. One specific action within the transition is an inverted ball screen. At times on film, it almost looks like it's like a, a you guys would ghost it or you'll like more of a shallow cut. Can you talk about that action to help get into the open offense? Yeah. So again, so much of it is how good, how good he is. Um, and, you know, we, we thought a lot of times he doesn't even need a screen. If we just kind of set some pin downs or some wide flare screens, he can just go one-on-one and we really don't need a whole lot. He can create an advantage and all of a, and then, you know, get a paint touch and he's either finishing or if the help comes, he can make, he was a great passer too. He can make the appropriate play to get us into a, a good situation offensively. But if we wanted to, yeah, we, we would set a lot of with our best shooters, you know, we had two guards who uh, last year were, you know, Brandon Anderson's playing in England right now. Zach Hunsaker uh, is working for Deloitte. And, uh, uh, but he, you know, both those guys were really good players, really good shooters, really good scorers. Uh, if we put T in a ball screen, whether the, Zach or Brandon would set it or ghost it or, you know, just kind of cut, it opened up a lot of space for him to get downhill, right? And he was, again, really good getting downhill. You know, depending on how you wanted to play that screen, you know, if you wanted to, you know, switch it, we could ghost it or we could set it. Sometimes we'd invite the switch and now all of a sudden you got a six foot guard on him. And now we just throw to the guy in the corner, dive him to the post. And we found that was a great way to get him post touches too. And, and he was a dynamite, you know, low post scorer mm-hmm. and passer. So I think the ghost action or the inverted ball screen at that angle and in that space was good for us. And then, you know, even if it didn't lead directly to him getting downhill or to our guy getting a shot, 
got the defense moving, got the ball moving, changed the size of the floor. And then, you know, if we were going to, you know, set it and pick and pop or ghost, you know, then the guys on that two guard side could all of a sudden start cutting and, you know, move in as well. Visually on this, this inverted ball screen is on the break. It's a reversal and he's, he's following almost like a drag action, right? But it's an inverted drag. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So T's got the ball at the top of the key and one of our guards from either wing could just come in and, and kind of set it. I don't know, I guess right around the lane line or just inside yeah. the lane line. And now T uh, is coming off, you know, hopefully getting downhill. Or again, if you switch it and we want the switch to happen, the guy in that corner from where the screener came from can lift we can throw and then dive T to the block and get him a post touch. Looking at the no, a normal pick and roll, how do you like to space around the pick and roll? And I know we've looked and you mentioned with cutting, are you encouraging cutting? Are there reads to these cuts? Are you dictating cuts or, you know, what's kind of your philosophy with the spacing or the three guys uh, around the pick and roll? So I think something we have to get a lot better at is the guys cutting you know, our weak side action, especially like if the ball, ball screen is being set on one side and we're going to a two man side, you know, what are those two guys doing? And there's some people that I think, and obviously you guys document it, do a great job of, you know, whether it's screening or uh, 45 cuts or baseline cuts and drifts, that's an area we have to get a lot better. I would also tell you, it depends on who's involved in the ball screen for us. So like if we're, you know, if we're setting an inverted ball screen and then our five man Jalen Ganey's in the game, you know, we want to make sure he's in the in the dunker spot away from where the ball's going because, as you guys probably saw, we, mm-hmm. we get, you know, if we can get T downhill and now all of a sudden uh, the guy guarding him can help up, you know, he's in a great position to be a, a finisher, you know, and he's, a, he's right, you know, right there and we can throw it up to him and lob it to him. But uh, I would say it depends on, you know, what are the other guys, what are their strengths, you know, what who's involved in the action, you know, if he's – if there's – and obviously – uh, your offense, uh, you know, has to be really creative if you have too many non-shooters around the ball screen. But if you have a guy who's not a great shooter uh, and he's one of those other three guys, can he be a great screener? Can you use him as a cutter? Those are some things that we're spending a lot of time right now trying to figure out how we can improve. Coach, another action within your offense is the get action, a pass and follow for a handoff. Can you talk about that action, how you teach it, and I guess some of the reads that you are trying to teach the guys out of it. Yeah, great question. And we, we did this a ton with Zach Hunsaker, who was just dynamite in it with us. And if we put him in, in T. Cho in a, in a get action, you know, now all of a sudden we have a really good playmaker with a live dribble. We have a great shooter running off. How do you want to guard it? You know, do you, you probably got to chase it over the top. If you go underneath, you know, a great shooter is going to, you know, that, that's a great shot for him. If you chase it over the top, you probably need some kind of support if the ball is handed off. Now, all of a sudden, if the big starts cheating or leave, you know leaving his man too early, now we have a guy with a live dribble. It, it became something that we tended to do more instead of setting ball screens because uh, I think it puts the defense uh, in a tougher spot. There's more options for the offense. It's you know, it's, it's a guy who hasn't initiated his dribble yet. Uh, it's, it's a guy maybe who uh, is more comfortable in a catch and shoot or a handback situation, shooting the ball. Uh, and we'll build it up with, you know, one on O with a coach, two on O, uh, three on O. And, you know, so much, and I'm sure you guys have seen it a lot in our league, so much of our league, there's so many, you know, kind of pass to the elbow and screen away or screen over the top or chase the ball actions that we defend. We've defended for years and we've run a little bit ourselves we just thought this was a, a you know another way to get into that randomly. Anytime you know a certain guy had a ball, had the ball on the perimeter, uh, one of our bigs could just kind of 
flash at him and instead of setting a ball screen could call for a get. And, you know, we have different terminology and language like everybody does from an offensive standpoint. Uh, we have a numbering system that goes back to my days playing for Glenn Miller, who was my college coach and taught me so much about, um, you know, running offense and, and just coaching in general. You know, so we have a numbering system for different screening actions and different cuts and different things that we want to do that we want to happen organically. And so it's pretty simple for our, our guys who want to get involved in that two-man action to, to get involved with it. So, Coach, if I follow you, th- this get action, it will be then something that is like on the fly, the guys on the quarter determining it, or is it a call that you're making? No, so we, I mean, so like we can build it into any kind of set play, uh, Patrick, just like we would a ball screen. But yeah, like if we're just running our uh, our regular, you know, motion, you know, four round one, you know, playing through, you know, our big and the low post or the elbow, or, you know, if we step them out and go five out, five out, our bigs can call and set ball screens anytime they want, right? By using their communication, using our actions, using our numbers. And they can also say, hey, I want to run a get action for Patrick because, you know what, he may not be great in ball screens, but he's really good uh, in a get and you know, we can get him uh, in a little handback option. He can refuse it in basket cut. He can, you know, I can keep it and you can sprint into a screen and, you know, we can change size. It's something that hopefully happens a whole lot more just by our guys communicating with each other. Yeah. Is there a spot on the floor you like to get the, get the get actions at, or does it matter? So like, I think we have a, one of our pet sets is, is getting into it kind of just between the elbow and the top of the key, you know, like our big flashing from mm-hmm. below our guard, catching it on a wing and kind of running downhill at them, you know, in between the elbow and the top of the key. But I mean, we'll, we'll run it, you know, if our guard catches, you know, like we have a ghost screen, a guard to guard ghost screen as a set play that uh, we'll run. We would run a lot with Zach and Brandon. If Zach caught it on the, um, you know, kind of flaring out, you know, on the slot, we'd have a four man in the corner. He could just flash from the corner right to the wing and run a get action there. So, you know, obviously I think it, it you know, you don't want to run it too high because, you know, if it's too far away from the basket, it doesn't make sense, but we've learned, we can also run it a lot with the ball in the wing and a guy just flashing to the elbow. Right. And you yeah. see that a ton yeah. too, you know, that kind of jungle action or whatever, you know, people call it. This is uh, something very similar to what, you know, we've run over the years and I I've found as a coach, one of the harder things to differentiate for guys on the fly when you want the offense just to be flowing and and not, you know, calling stuff out is for this get action, when to get into the the get action or when the big is going to come set the on-ball screen. And and I think early in the season, we'd have times where, you know, our big could do both. They could either throw it and get get action or the guy could come and set a ball screen and trying to hone in on the communication between the two players knowing when what action is coming. So I like to maybe go back to what you talked about, the number system, obviously not giving us the actual calls from you, but who's calling the numbers out? Is it the big? Is it the guard while they're flowing in the offense? Yeah. So either one, and you, I'll give you all the numbers because if people <laughs> want to spend that much time figuring out what a down screen is and what a ball screen <laughs> is, they're, they're probably, the defenders are going to, uh, they're not going to be playing it through with their instincts and that's good for us. But, uh, yeah, so like if, if I want to set a ball screen for Patrick, I can just yell five. Or if Patrick wants me to sell, set a ball screen for him, he can say five, five, five. Now, obviously, we don't want the ball to stick as much, and I'd rather the bigs kind of proactively, you know, want to set screens and want to create action. A lot of times earlier in the year, we'll script it too. I think so much uh, good can come from coaches kind of dictating things and scripting things early, and then guys eventually doing it on their own and reading and reacting based on, you know, what the defense is doing and what, you know, situation might call for. The other thing too, for guards, 
you know, they, we all want to the ball in our hands. We all want to dribble and, you know, uh, create action through the ball screen. You know, I think that's natural. The more we can convince our guys, hey, this is really good for you, right? We get you in a sprint cut. We get you in options to catch and shoot, you know, behind it. We get you in uh, basket cut situations. The more we can convince them that a get action will be better for them, I think, you know, the, the better our offense can become. And I'll, Zach Hunsaker really bought into it and, and realized how great he could be in it and how great it could be for the rest of our team. And uh, it became something we pretty much did almost all the time. We wanted to get him in a two-man play. So my, my next question is sort of building off of the decision-making process of the get action. So a guy passes and follows and gets the handoff back. How many reads are you teaching him off of that action? And then also, I guess, what are you then teaching the big after he gives the handoff successfully? What do you want him to do next? I think there's probably less reads than than in a normal ball screen, just because I think it's a hard thing to hedge or trap or blast. You know, I think that's hard. So, uh, so if the guy goes under and you can shoot it, shoot it. If it goes under and you want to rescreen, you know, then you know our, our bigs are trained anytime a guy goes under or whips a screen, whether it's a ball screen or a handoff or a get. Uh, they're ready to to automatically rescreen. If the guy chases over the top, can you create separation and get downhill? Can you turn the corner? Is the big on the ball? Is he in a drop? Is he supporting? You know, so I think those are kind of your reads as a ball handler, and we're going to practice those as a guard. I should say the guy receiving the get for the big for the guy, and we'll we'll run some guard to guard gets too. But for the most part, for a big. First and foremost, do you feel your guy cheating? Can you fake it and, and keep it, right? And T. Cho, Tom and Cho was great at, you know, keeping our gets. Um, if you hand it off and the guy goes under, then you're ready to rescreen. If you hand it off and the guy goes under, you know, I, I should say you're ready to rescreen. You're also ready to adjust your existing screen to maybe create a shot for your teammate. And if you hand off and the guard is being chased over the top, you know, do you want to fade? You know, we got to make sure we call that out. Are you going to roll? You got to make sure you call that out. And the biggest thing, and you guys have had so many people who've talked about it, is creating separation, right? The guy using the screen, the guy setting the screen. As soon as we bring two to the ball, we want to make sure we create as much separation as possible and uh, make sure we, again, call out our actions and communicate what we're doing because whether I hand off and fade or hand off and roll is probably very different as far as what the other guys not involved in the action, what they need to be doing. Coach, with the handoff, what what is the technique you're trying to teach or encourage with the guy when he's given the handoff? Yeah, so Coach Miller, you know, was great teaching triple handoffs. And John Gallagher, who was on our staff at Penn, came from Fran O'Hanlon at Lafayette. And John would say that you want to put the ball on a platter like you're a waiter at a five-star restaurant and let the guy take it from you. So we we've taught that. We've also, you know, depending on if I don't come tight, you know, off the screen, you know, which we want to teach cutting shoulder to shoulder and being tight and making sure you run your guy into the screen. But sometimes, you know, if we do a really good job with our action, maybe before the get, and now all of a sudden I'm a great shooter and I throw to you, I don't have to come tight because my guy's not really going to be able to contest and you just got to screen your own. And, you know, maybe we just flip it back. So we've gotten less detailed with that, Patrick, as we've evolved. But I'd say we either want to kind of put it there and, and let the guy take it uh, for us, or we want to flip it. The other thing with as much as we're keeping it, these gets and keeping these handoffs, you know, we want to probably keep two hands on the ball as much as possible. Coach, on that point, the keep from the big, 
what's his read on keeping it or not keeping it? I think a lot of it's, you know, you know, we, we talk about it and we try to give him some cues. A lot of it's instincts too, you know, but if I have the ball at the elbow and I'm facing Patrick, who's running at me for a get, and I feel my defender leaning and ready to show or ready to support, as soon as I feel that, you know, I can go. A lot of times I think it's best we keep it when it's in the middle of the court and the defense is maybe spread out a little bit as opposed to on a side where they can load up. But, uh, yeah, it's more just kind of do you feel your defender cheating a little bit to, to help on the shooter coming off? Okay. And then, sorry, one more technical question on that. If he keeps it and the guard doesn't receive the handoff and the big doesn't get downhill to, like, get to the rim, What's the next action you prefer? Do you want the guard who didn't get the handoff to continue to cut to the rim, to space, to come back for a second get option? What's the automatic after that? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's an automatic, although I and I heard Josh talk about this too, like the ability to have automatics built into your offense. We have some and I think they're great. In a get, I would say it's more, all right, have I already dribbled? If I've already dribbled, then it's going to be hard maybe to hit the cutter. But if you haven't dribbled and you think you see teams who run through their bigs at the elbow, if I'm going to, you know, not hand it off to a cutter and, you know, maybe it's because the guy kind of blew it up or chased it over the top and we just didn't feel like it was a possibility that wrap pass, you know, as the guy continues his cut, you know, kind of wrapping it for a bounce pass or if the defense helps skipping it to the weak side, you know, because the guy helped in on that cut, we encourage our cutters. If they don't get the ball in a get or an elbow or a handoff action, get to the next action, you know, finish your cut. If you think you have a cut to the rim or get to a screening action with somebody else as quickly as possible, if that makes sense. So like, you know, the other thing I think can be really good too for a a post player or a big guy who keeps, keeps it in a get and he doesn't hand it off uh, is quickly snapping it to the next guy and sprinting to a two man, you know, ball screen, ghost screen, whatever it might be with that guy or dribbling at him. And, you know, maybe you run a dribble handoff with that guy or a basket cut with that guy. Coach, my last kind of question on this, when we watch these good teams, high-level teams, you see how they can flow just into the next action, the next action, similar to what you were talking about here, if you don't get the handoff cut or go to the next screen. So my question is, how are you training your team to kind of not stall out and keep getting the next action? Is there any sort of drills or sort of small-sided games, something that you like, you know, besides obviously, of course, you know, you got to play five-on-five to get good at these things, but something that you found has worked encouraging this? Well, you guys have seen our offensive numbers and you've seen our video. So I don't know if I'm the, the right guy to answer this no. one, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, we, I mean, we, we do a ton of breakdown drills, like two on O, three on O. We run hard five on O every day. We've definitely evolved, I think, into uh, you know, our identity is, be, you know, that we're going to be a great defensive team, but we have to get better offensively. We've gotten better as a program because of our defense and the improvement we've made. But if we want to win our league, which, you know, obviously we want to do, uh, we've got to be better offensively. And I think our flow's got to improve. I think our the quality of our actions has to improve. But yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of breakdown drills, uh, two on O, three on O. We'll play three on three, right? And playing through, you know, I just, you know, and it helps us defensively too, because we have to guard a lot of this stuff. But if we just, you flash to me, you know, flash to the top of the key and I have the ball and you know, there's a guy in the corner and I pass to you, you know, we can run a get, we can run a basket cut, we can run a, sp- a split action. Uh, it helps us offensively uh, with our reading and with our reacting, our decision-making. It helps us defensively too, because we're going to have to be really good at guarding those things. When you do these, will you dictate like, hey, we're going to get to a get, but you can't make the handoff or put any sort of constraints that then force them to find the second or third solution? 
Yeah, we will. A lot of times, you know, we'll let that happen organically, you know, but we will, you know, say, you know, we're running, uh, you know, let's just run uh, an elbow action, you know, Princeton point action. You know, you have the option, to, you know, to sprint after it. You have the option to screen away. You have the option to screen over the top. Sometimes we'll do that in four on four. Uh, other times we'll just go four on four spread middle ball screen. And again, it's it's both helping with our reading uh, and reacting offensively and, and also our, our defense, right, and our, our coverages yeah. defensively. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if you can put restrictions or constraints on the offense and force them into kind of the next uh, read and the next option, that'll help you offensively for sure. Coach, this has been awesome. We like to move now into our start, sub, or sit segment. And so just a quick refresher. We'll give you three different basketball topics. You'll say which one you would start, which one you'd sub, get a little playing time, and which one probably not getting in. And then we can have a you know a little discussion around it if need be. But first one, just a fun one for you to start. If you didn't have your current head coaching job at the college level start sub or sit these are other coaching opportunities either a high school head coach an mba assistant coach or an espn analyst (laughs) uh all right so i will sit being an espn analyst because uh one thing i'm finding out this year is uh as much as i don't miss tough losses the feeling of you know not having that competition, not having that season, man, it, you know you miss it so much. So I'm sitting that one. Okay, I would start. I would start being an NBA assistant, and I'd sub being a high school coach. I love being a head coach. I love having the ability to run my own program and make my own decisions. And I would love that opportunity to be a high school coach and and, and prepare you know hopefully young men to go on to you know great college careers and great careers afterwards. But I'd, I'd sub that one and I'd start being an NBA assistant just because it's the best league in the world and it's the highest level of basketball. And it's, uh, you know, uh, I'm a basketball coach. So like uh, to coach at the highest level would be a pretty cool thing. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, coach, uh, start, sub or sit. You're recruiting a player. So do you recruit for talent regardless if you're, you have two all conference guards, but you're looking at a talented guard, do you recruit to fit whether you need a position or how much then the last bucket is, how much does attitude, what are these kind of three things, what are weighing on you when you're looking at yeah, this Yeah, so sitting the fit, like that's the least, you know, I think we, you know, our job is to figure out based on, uh, well, I'm not a Duke or Kentucky and we can't just select guys. Like we got to figure out, can we get the most talented uh, player versus a fit? Talent or attitude, though, I'm going attitude. I'm starting attitude and I'm subbing talent. Uh, You know, obviously, you're not going to win any games if you have the best quality attitude, no talent. You're not going to win. We all know that. You have to have talent. I just think there's so many good players out there. And there's so many guys, if they want to work at it and they want to develop and they want to be coached, they can become really good players and uh, they can become the best versions of themselves. And we've taken a ton of pride in our program's ability to develop guys. You have to have talent for sure. We're going to sub talent, but we're going to start attitude. It's one of our core values, and I think it's one of the biggest you know things we've learned. I've learned as a as a young head coach, we've got to have guys that are you know their values line up with with our values as a program. If you're recruiting two guys that are you know say of, of fairly equal talent, on the attitude side, what are deal breakers for you that you see a kid do something on the floor or you hear about something from an AU coach that you pull out, you don't want to recruit that kid anymore. 
Yeah, I'm sure there's so many, so many good examples. Uh, I think the biggest one, though, is like, you know, I think part of our job in recruiting and in evaluating is having conversations and communicating and building relationships. If Patrick just keeps saying, uh, you know, I did this and uh, I did that and uh, they got to give me the ball more and I had, you know, like that's that's a hard one for me to like yeah. if, if it's me and it's not we and us, I think that's going to be a hard one to to have success with at our, you know, at the college level. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the ones that we, it's a sign early on uh, that it's probably not going to work out. If, uh, another one, I mean, and, and obviously recruiting the family is so important. If the parents, you know, we want parents to be involved. Obviously they're writing the check for tuition. We don't have scholarships and, you know, yeah. um, you know, we're all need based from a financial aid standpoint. So we have to have the parents involved, but if they're a little too involved in the recruiting process, that's, that's another red flag. Real quick follow-up. You go to a game and a kid loses it on the floor, gets a tee, tantrum, shows a lot of emotion. Is that a turnoff or is that something that you want to investigate more because you like guys that have a little grittiness to them? Yeah. So I think it depends, but it would be super hypocritical of me to have that be a deal breaker because I've lost my cool plenty of times <laughs> as a player, as an assistant coach and as a head coach. So uh, obviously we want to work on that, controlling our emotions uh, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror when I say that, you know, so I'd want to know more about the cause of it. But if I said it was a deal breaker, I'd be, I'd be a hypocrite. Got it. Okay. Coach, next one. These are spots on the floor that you would want to isolate if you had a good ISO player. So start, sub, or sit, isolate in the post, isolate at the elbow, or isolate on a wing. Starting the elbow. I just think it's, it's less defined help. It's it's uh, harder to load up on the ball. You know, there's more things you can do. Uh, I think offensively with your spacing. I'm gonna sub the low post. You know, because I think you can get creative with what you're doing offensively. You know, with you know the guys on the perimeter. If you want to put somebody in a weak side dunker spot, which we've done a ton of. You know, with uh, Tom and Ong Cho. Uh, you know, isolate him and putting Jalen Ganey in the weak side dunker. And then I would sit the wing as a defense. I just think you can load up and get pretty, you know, if you want to go trap the wing. I think I think it's easier to mm -hmm. uh, defend a wing isolation than it is a low post or an elbow isolation. Coach, will you put a guard at the elbow to isolate or a guard at the, in the post to isolate, you know, if you have one that can do that? Yeah, and one of the things we, you know, We've had and we've had a lot of good players at a lot of uh, really good players at different positions uh, in the last eight years. But some of our best offenses come when we've had guards that can really post up, and you know maybe more so big wings. But like Obi Akoli, who's an All Ivy player, Desmond Cambridge, who's uh, transferred, he's now in Nevada, but he was dynamite in the low post for us. Steven Spieth was a six six wing uh, that could really play all over the court. We'd post him a ton. He was awesome in the low post. So. I love posting guards. It's probably uh, Coach Miller sold it to me when he was recruiting me, probably because he, he didn't think I was a very good passer or shooter or dribbler on the perimeter, but I was 6'4", and he's like, well, we post our guards a lot. You, you know, I think you could be really good doing that. So uh, it was probably, probably born a lot out of that. But, yeah, I love to post guards if we, if we have what kind of actions will you like to run around the, the guard post? Yeah. So I think, you know, depends on who the other guys on the court are, but mm -hmm. if you, you know, a big or someone who's not a great shooter, can you put them in the dunker spot? You know, Jalen Ganey was dynamite for us, you know, six, nine, six, 10, you know, seven, two wingspan could really jump. We could, you know, put him in the weak side dunker spot. And depending on how you wanted to help the, the guard posting up, um, you know, with him, you know, we could throw lobs or, or, or do, you know, different things with him there. You know, we'll run traditional split actions. 
you know, with the feeder, you know, I think the feeder, I love having the feeder give him the flexibility to be a, a speed cutter as well, whether you want to speed cut through the lane or speed cut on the baseline side, you know, I, and this is something else that you guys have done a great job with, but like, uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued with, uh, what's it, I don't want to mispronounce it, the Bil- Bilboa action, right? The Bilbao, yeah. But like that stuff is really intriguing to me. You know, we do a lot with our staggered uh, screens on the perimeter, and, you know, what reads we're going to make based on what you do off the first screen or the second screen. And, you know, building that into low post play, I think is really good stuff. One more question. We'll try to keep it moving. You know, me and Dan are kind of on like a posting guards kick. Have you experimented with then putting the guard in the post and sending a pick and roll, basically sending a screener to go, uh, you know, play a pick and roll from the post? It's something that we are planning on doing an awful lot next year because our point guard, Dan Friday, is like 6'4", big physical 215-pound guard, and, you know, we're going to post them, but then, you know, I love I love it, and I've seen some European teams do it, you know, whether you post them them off a back screen or a back cut or whatever, but then coming in in ball screen in there, uh, in that little gray area of the court, I I think can be – uh, what are you going to do defensively? Yeah. We're planning on it next year. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, coach. Yeah. Our last one then starts up sit looking at the, the trail man, as far as the skill you'd value the most when you're playing the, the open offense, passing, shooting or dribbling, attacking. Yeah. I'd say maybe a little recency bias right here, but man, those are, they're, they're all important. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to sit any of them. And, and I think most people would probably say sit the, dr- the dribbling ability, but like, I just saw how, you know, uh, if you ask me what Tomanong was best at, he was dynamite, you know, being able to create off the bounce in the open floor as a trailer. So I would, I would, I, I would sub dribbling. I would start passing because passing to me, you know, a, a guy in that position as the decision maker, as a quarterback who has some size as a trailer, uh, his ability to pass, I think is so important. And then I would, sit shooting and uh it's crazy to to say as a the guy who wants to be a have a good offensive program but i would go start passing sub dribbling and sit shooting i, I might get thrown out thrown out of coaching <laughs> profession <for something. laughs> you're you're za- you're zagging when everyone's zigging i think right now or, <laughs> yeah. or it is but you know and and obviously these are all important skills and we've had coaches that have said well I'm not going to sit something. I'm just going to sub him in after this guy. So maybe shooting's your seventh man and dribbling's your sixth. Yeah, he, shooting's going to play. He, yeah. He's got to play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, though, and, and if you look at our numbers, man, maybe that's why our offensive numbers are what they are because I'm sitting shooting. <laughs> With a guy that can shoot it, do you notice being able to get into certain other actions easier? Yeah, I think just, it, it, it. first off, it just opens the floor for penetration, right? When you, yeah. gravity, I mean, if, I mean, if you have a, a guy that can really shoot it, if you have a four, a trailer who can shoot it, you know, what does it do for the guards who are trying to get into the paint? You know, I, I think that gravitational pull is so important. You know, I, I think using a great shooter as a screener, right? If you want to set some really good, you know, trail pin downs or trail ball screens or trail, you know, DHOs with that guy, you know, if he's an elite shooter, it puts the defense in a, in a tough spot. So I'm already contradicting my answer here, guys, because I'm just saying to myself, man, if you had a, a lights out shooter, if I had to guard that guy, I'd be probably more nervous. But uh, uh, I'm going to, again, the recency bias. Uh, Tomanon could make shots, but he was a dynamite dribbler and passer. That's why I went the way I went. Coach, thanks. You're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. We appreciate you uh, 
going through those with us. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun. Probably failed, failed miserably. (laughs) Hey, at Brown, at Brown, we can take classes pass fail. So as long as I got it, as long as I passed it, (laughs) you know, I don't need an A guys. We just need to pass. Pass with flying colors. Yeah, absolutely. Well, coaches, we, as we finish out the podcast here, first of all, thank you for your time. This has been really fun for us. So thank you for, for spending this uh, hour plus with us and digging into some of these things. It's been really great to finish. You know, you're someone that I know spends a lot of time honing your craft off the court as well and studying and talking to other coaches and things like that. Interested to hear what one of the best investments in your career has been. Yeah, I, I would just say investing in, I don't know how, if this directly answers your question, but the investment we make as coaches and our players, I mean, there, it's just, there's nothing more important in the relationships that you build off the court, you know, and I've learned through uh, doing some great work in that area. And I've also learned by not, you know, maybe doing as much as I needed to early on. And as we go forward here, the investment you can make in your your student athletes and their families and, and, and what you want to do for them and help them off the court, away from basketball, prepare them for the rest of their lives. That's the biggest thing that I've learned. And, you know, what we're trying to do every day, like, you know, uh, our, how much we care about our student athletes and, you know, how important it is for us to be able to build long lasting relationships. Uh, a great coach uh, once told somebody who related to me, I'll know I'm doing my job if I'm at your wedding, right? And uh, you know, I want to be invited to a lot of weddings. Uh, we want to win championships, but we also want to be at a lot of weddings. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for deeper insights on this podcast as well as X and O Concepts. Have a great week, Coach, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like Slapping Backboard. <laughs> slapping Glass. <laughs> slapping Glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> Slapping Glass.